Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's business litigation practice group. With me today is Rob Del Priori, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Mid-America Apartment Communities. Rob, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. Um, I'm excited about today's topic. Rob led the integration team when Mid-America acquired Post Properties, Inc. last year. That mergers made Mid-America one of the largest real estate investment trusts in the nation's multifamily housing sector. Mid-America owns or has an ownership interest in over 100,000 operating apartment homes in 305 communities in 17 states in the District of Columbia. As you might expect from a deal of that size, there were a lot of moving parts. And I really think the whole integration of companies is something you don't get to know and learn about in law school. And I think the other GCs out there are going to be interested in, uh, in Rob's tips. You, you live through the process, right, Rob? Right, Mark. I think from the lawyer point of view, typically what you learn about in law school or your practice and as uh, external counsel is, you're documenting the transaction, you're getting the closing documents ready so that you are prepared to close the transaction. Then you create the closing binder and you send it off to the client and your work is done. And from the in-house perspective, you realize that the closing of the transaction is really the beginning of the process because once you actually get the other company under your control and you begin the process of integrating the two organizations, that is where a lot of the challenge occurs and really where the opportunity to create value exists is in that in that integration. Right. So I gather with an integration on this level, you've got multiple pieces to think about from IT, policies, personnel, units. What did the process look like for you? There were there were several aspects to it, as you said. So you, you look at acquiring a, a $4 billion equity market cap company, uh, the IT systems, we were both on the same IT system, we're on different versions of that IT system. So there was an entire working group dedicated to looking at the post IT systems, what bells and whistles did they have, the MAA IT systems, what bells and whistles did we have, and really, and, and this is something you'll hear me say a lot, I mean, we, we really tried to, as we obtain the synergy, get the best athlete on the field, get the best system in place to really build a strong platform that will carry us into the future. So there were, in the IT world, there were a lot of decisions that Post had made that we said, okay, that, that is the best decision for, in, in our colloquial term, the future application landscape. What is this going to look like? What are we going to use for this AP system or what are we going to use for this fixed asset system? And there was, and it's still ongoing now, so we ultimately made our decisions about what the future applications would look like in the IT space and then have brought in some third parties to assist us with project managing the transition where you have a legacy post IT system running over here currently now a legacy MAA system, and perhaps one of the most important things was a financial reporting and operations bridge was built that really laid on top of both systems so that we had good visibility into what was happening from day one. That That's the most critical thing is really as the public markets analyze these transactions, you can't stub your toe, you can't have a misstep, you've got to continue to operate even though you're 
working really hard behind the scenes to integrate two organizations, having the ability to continue to operate, to report your financials and to not have a miss is, is critical. So the operational bridges were built that enabled us to have the time to thoughtfully go through an analysis of the IT landscape and then really as POST continues doing what it's doing, MAA continues doing what it's doing, really building a third system in the, uh, we, we use Yardi as the name of the uh, operating platform, really building a third system that is the future application landscape. And then we'll migrate the POST properties into it and then migrate the MAA properties into it on a rolling basis towards the end of the year after our busy season that that's another one of the challenges is as we look to integration of policies and procedures you have in the multifamily space the summer months are the busy leasing season and you want to decrease the amount of change that you're forcing at the property level during the busy season so trying to accomplish a lot of this either in the early part of the year or the later part of the year is critical so that operations folks can keep operating the business and not have to worry about, oh, what am I gonna do with this new system or this new policy or this new procedure? So that was IT. Similarly, the operations side is uh, equally complicated when you have two companies that have 35 year histories and they've, while we're 350 miles apart and both in the Southeast, group, I mean, kind of as companies evolve, they make different decisions to go down different paths and and trying to figure out how to marry the operational procedures and how do we do things at this property versus this property is another exercise in really, okay, we're going to basically let everybody keep doing what they're doing. We're going to evaluate the policies and procedures and make a decision in kind of that multifunctional, so the multifunctional group of, okay, we've got operations that is gonna have their input, we'll have risk management's gonna have their input, we'll have IT with their input, and then financial and accounting to have their input. So you really have a collaborative process with all of the functional business units within the organization making decisions about what does the future application landscape look like in IT, what does the future operations landscape look like on the operations side, and then the way we run our business is you have operations and asset management and operations are more siloed organizations where you have a property reporting to a regional vice president, reporting to a senior vice president. So if you look at that as the vertical, and then we have an asset management function that may be landscaping, it may be pricing, it may be all of these other things that really cross hatch across the silos. and. And the idea is to manage the white space between the silos and really bring everybody up to the next level. And we, with the merger, as I said, I mean, we identified $20 million in just expense synergies that we expect to capture on a run rate basis by the end of 2017. A lot of that's eliminating duplicate overhead and cost of being a public company. And that will easily take place, or not easily, I mean, it's taking a lot of work, but. <laughs> In addition to that, just what we anticipate is there are several areas that we're going to be able to create significant value for our shareholders by really operating at a slightly different level, bringing a redevelopment pipeline to some of the legacy post properties and and just kind of driving their operating results to be a little bit more in line with ours.
Who came up with the timetable? I mean, you've described a lot of moving parts. Did did you sit down and say, this is going to take a year and a half, or was there a small committee? Is there some handbook you can look at to say, well, if you're merging <laughs> two public companies, we suggest 18 months. I mean, how, I imagine that in and of itself, just outlining the process is a huge challenge. We had done a, we, we acquired Colonial Properties Trust at the end of 2013, and we took a slightly different approach in that transaction, and we really pushed everything more quickly. And we felt like that stressed the organization some. It, it went off well. The transaction was a remarkable success. We delivered a lot of value for our shareholders, but felt like that may have been moving a little too fast. And so we, as a management group, decided to take a more focused effort. That effort was focused, but really to, to drive a longer, more thoughtful approach to rolling out uh, the change and, and how it needed to happen in a way that people could digest the change and, and change management. I mean, that's something you never heard in law school ever, but uh, and that, that's part of the challenge with integration is it really is as much a, an exercise in psychology as it is anything else and trying to figure out how are people going to respond to change? Some people are very adaptive and other people aren't. And how do you get the most people to buy into what what you want to have happen? And a lot of the way that that works is you give people a voice and you let them be heard. And it, it's not just, okay, well, the executive team said, this is what's gonna happen, so this is what's gonna happen. And I mean, in a merger, there's obviously some of that that has to happen is you have to you have to lead, but at the same time, the more input people can have into the decision-making process so they feel like they were part of the decision that was made and it wasn't just something pushed upon them. It makes for a, a better buy-in from everybody. No, that's a great point. And I think the psychology is one that, yeah, we don't get in law school, but is important. Let me ask a slightly different angle on that. For people, obviously here, Mid-America is quite a bit larger. It was acquiring posts. So for the legacy post people, the people that feel like they've been acquired, did you do anything you know, special to try to keep them in the fold, as it were, so they didn't feel like they were just now absorbed into, into, into Mid-America? I think I think that's part of the messaging to post was you you are doing some things incredibly well and those will continue and we will have for example post was based in Atlanta we've committed to probably uh, an office in Atlanta well we've committed to an office in Atlanta we'll probably have 50 to 60 people in Atlanta so a sizable presence there actually building out another floor in the building to kind of really post that two floors where it consolidate everybody into into a single floor. And it really, they've got a lot of incredible people there and had built an incredible organization. And we feel like it was a really big uh, opportunity for us to, um, that the timing was right. Uh, the stocks were trading at appropriate multiples. We get asked a lot of time by the investment community, why didn't you wait? Why did you do it now? Because Post has more of an infill property that's under more supply pressure than your suburban portfolio and things were going great for you. Why would you do this now? And our answer is always that, well, we're doing it now because you can do it now and, and you engage in M&A transactions when the opportunity presents itself. and. We worked hard to position ourselves from a balance sheet strength point of view, from an operational performance point of view, to 
take opportunities when they're presented. And this was an opportunity that presented itself and we feel great about the opportunity and that we were positioned and we captured it. That's great. The right thing at the right time. Exactly. Right? That's part of the <laughs> part of the mission statement it for, for Mid America. Now, in addition to the overall company integration, you also had to do some integration in the legal department, right? Right. I understand you had there were four post lawyers in Atlanta. You had you were here and had a, an office here. For our GC listeners, how did you approach that challenge? Because obviously, you started there were GCs at both companies when right. the right. when the merger occurred. Uh, Sherry Cohen was my counterpart at Post, and she could not have been more helpful and gracious through the transaction. She, we had several discussions early on, had a very candid relationship. We would share information with each other and just talk openly and candidly, which I, I, I think is the most helpful way to accomplish things because if you establish a relationship with candor and trust, then you're going to ultimately have a better relationship. And that was how we both chose to go about it. So Sherry was ready to retire. So it was a very aptly timed transaction for her as well. Another one of the lawyers in the in the group decided that uh, that he would also retire. So we kept two folks there. And, and really, I think it's for those people in private practice who've been in private practice with multiple offices. It, it's really the same concept with technology today and the ability to Skype and video conference and exchange emails and share documents. It's it's still, for those of us of a certain age, is not the same as being down the hall from other people, but you can effectively manage that change and it's it, it's disruptive. Uh, I mean, the, to be in the Atlanta office of MAA right now, it, it's different than if when you were in the in the main office of a four billion dollar public company and you had the CEO walking around the halls every day and it's just different for them. So part of it is really doing everything we can to make them feel a part of the MAA team. And for example, we have our annual leadership conference here in Memphis this week. We're bringing everybody, uh, 400 to 500 people, I'm not sure the exact final count, but everybody from the property level and above will be brought to Memphis. Everyone comes in really for two days of meetings to talk about, um, everything will have a theme. And last year's theme was stewardship. And we really do view ourselves as the stewards of the public trust that's put in us, the capital, whether it's debt capital or equity capital, or banks loaning us money, whatever it is. and. And additionally, the concept that in the real estate space, we are unique in the asset class with multifamily because we are providing people's homes. So we, we feel an obligation as we provide someone's home to really take that concept of stewardship to really three sets of constituencies, our, our investors, whether they're equity or, or debt investors, our associates who also are, are critical to our long-term success and we want to provide an opportunity for them to have a meaningful career with opportunity for advancement and as a bigger company that that's we, we have that in place and then finally our residents and in no particular order there but I mean our residents were providing their home we want them to have a safe comfortable place to live that they want to stay in that they feel comfortable in and it's the same thing when we bring everybody in town, as I said, I mean, stewardship was the concept last year, this year is trust. So that is just key touch points of our corporate culture and that really gets to who we are as an organization. Post had a very similar corporate culture to us. They 
I mean, if, if one of the things we looked at very early on after we announced the transaction was uh, Dave Stockard, who was post-CEO, took the MAA mission statement and the post-mission statement and sent out an email to the post employees with these two mission statements side by side, and they remarkably almost marry up wow. perfectly. So very, yeah. which, I mean, that, that honestly helps an organization tremendously with integration is if, if you have two similar corporate cultures that you can combine, which is, makes it a lot easier to get to where you want to be at the end of the day. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think the interest, the focus on on trust is a is an interesting topic too, because it goes beyond some of the day to day business stuff and really looks at that relationship and how can we, you know, work together, trust each other, and and promote it. I think that's helpful. I want to take a step back, broader, um, rather than just your experience, and see if there's some any tips that you would offer to our listening audience for other GCs. Maybe it's a different industry, but if they're getting Getting ready to do a merger, going through a merger. What are some practical tips that you can give your fellow GCs out there? I think the the, the first tip is, and I kind of said it earlier. I mean, a candid, open communication between both sides from the beginning. Obviously, there are negotiations that go into play with a purchase agreement, but once you get to the point where you're talking about people and who should I keep? Who should I let go? I mean, having that candid relationship with your peer or people within the organization where you can trust the information that you're getting about, because I mean, in, in every organization, there are people that are excellent employees and some that are good and, and you really need that input. I mean, when you're meeting someone and you spend 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes with them, it's impossible to really truly evaluate them as well as someone who's worked with them for 10 years or 15 years. So trying to do that is important. The second step is really just planning. And it's the same thing. It's what we really did with a cross-functional team to sit down and determine what are the most important things that we need to focus on? Where are the risk areas? And what do we need to do, not, not necessarily from a legal risk, but from a business risk, any legal risk or regulatory risk? What, what do we need to accomplish? What do we need to be prepared to respond to day one? And, and that was our, we had a day one list that was about 30 pages of all of this stuff needs to be ready to go day one and we would meet once a week and go through and it was green or it was yellow or it was red and if it was red we talked about it if it was yellow we talked about it if it was green we didn't talk about it and so that project management and I mean, for, for example our goal was on December 1st when we closed the merger at 12.01 a.m. on December 1st the websites needed to be up and running and it needed to be one website and there was a ton of work behind the scenes for the IT group to have these 60 post properties that all have their own web page that was on postproperties.com to have all that ready on mac.com so that if someone went to that site, it redirected them to the Mac website and there was not a glitch and that you could do your online leasing and you could do everything immediately on day one and building all those connections and because from from the outside world point of view, I mean, as, as hard as we're working internally to make it all work, it needs to be seamless, right. and, it, and it was. And, and it's just the preparation, and in the real estate industry, we're not as limited, 
with the antitrust issues as, as other industries are, and we didn't exert any control over post, but preparing so that on day one, you're, you're really ready to have the switch go on and it's like, okay, here we are, we're one company. So that's the second tip is just preparation. And the third tip is really, I think the practical psychological tip of, uh, and, and one of the things, so I, I spend a day or two a week in our Atlanta office, um, we'll just talk, I mean, a lot, and a lot of it is talking to people and getting the pulse of the organization and, and trying to understand and understanding the disruption that people feel when their company is acquired and, and trying to really bring them into the fold and make them feel comfortable that, okay, you are part of the new organization. There is a role here. There's career advancement here. There's opportunity here. And just understanding the, the people component so that you really, because I, I think the risk in a transaction is if you don't feed the legacy acquired companies associates they'll ultimately wither and and leave uh they have to know that they're valued and that there's a place for them and that you you want them to be a part of the organization and, and we absolutely do great thank you i think those are helpful tips before i move to some audience questions i have a question that i'm starting to ask each of my guests which is what do you predict will be the biggest change in the gc's office in the next five to 10 years, and how are you preparing for that change? I think it's the overall, the evolution of the practice of law, and it gets to how legal services are delivered, whether that's litigation services or corporate or M&A or security services. It does seem like we are in a period of transition in the legal field where I mean, it, it started with alternative fee arrangements. You're seeing more of those. And now I think you're moving into even more alternative service delivery with all of the information that is out there right now that third-party non-law firms are providing and, and that even law firms are providing for free in terms of you go onto the law firm website and you can build a model term sheet if you just answer questions. So that whole document assembly process, I think, is there. The artificial intelligence things that are coming out now and predictive reasoning and ask a question and you'll get a legal memo that answers the question. I'm still not quite convinced of <laughs> it. We've got driverless cars now, so right. yeah. anything is possible, right? Right. So I think we're at, a, at an inflection point in some ways of how, it just in, in the general counsel's office, how legal services are delivered and how they're valued. And I think they'll always be there. And I mean, it, it goes back to Serengeti and the other software that's out there to analyze and you have to submit your bills through here. And it's, it's an interest technology. I mean, technology, as is the case probably with all aspects of life, is where the, the change in the GC's office is going gonna, is gonna to happen. Yeah, no, I think those are great points. And for listeners interested in the topic, uh, you may recall we did a podcast on alternative fee uh, agreements. So look for that on our on our listing of podcasts. I, I do. It's an area that I certainly see in my practice where there's a shift to you know beyond the simple billable hour and how do we look at it. I think you're right. There's pressures from non-legal providers. Um, there's a lot going on in the e-discovery area. It is amazing how technology changes uh, right. everything. Are you seeing more stuff being done internally? I mean, do you think your GC office in five years will be 
have more staff or the same or less or you know how does how does the size of the GC's office going to change in light of the other changes going on in the practice of law? That's a, it's an interesting question. Obviously, you wouldn't ask it, <laughs> but, but um, I, I would say we'll probably stay the same size. I, I think you look at organizations decide to the big driver of the size of the organization I think is really whether you choose to internally handle all of your litigation or not and if you make that choice like some organizations have that our goal is to spend zero dollars in outside legal fees then you're gonna have a massive fixed cost internal legal department and presumably you would get better service because you'll have lawyers that are integrated into the management decisions and truly understand the business better than even if you're an external counsel and you've been providing work to the same company for 20, 25 years, you still don't know the inner workings and the personalities because you're not in there working with them every day. So I, I think we'll probably stay about the same size. Uh, I don't think we're going to decide that we're going to start doing all of our litigation, whether it's slip and fall or evictions or big cases internally. We're doing some of our real estate work internally now, and that's uh, we've got three really good real estate lawyers, so we'll probably continue to, to do that and expand the, the amount of real estate work that we do in-house. But uh, other than that, I think we're kind of good with our size where we are. We may wind up doing some more adding one here or there on an operational point of view just because you get into I mean we, we are not a heavily regulated industry but a regulated industry in the apartment world which that with every state having its own version of the uniform residential landlord tenant act and then some municipalities that also pass different ordinances relating to housing that we need to keep abreast of and make sure that our leases and our operating practices adapt and conform as laws and regulations change so Lot to keep, gotcha. lot to keep in front of. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, no, plenty going on. Well, thank you. We did have a couple of questions from our, our listening audience, so uh, let me turn to those now. Uh, the first one asks, "What legal technology do you depend on most?" That is, um, what is interesting is as my role has shifted. The legal technology, I'd say that uh, the corporatecouncil.net blog is just to keep abreast of anything that's evolving in the securities area is, is one thing that I look at on a daily basis. But other than that, it really is. I mean, I'm not doing any research anymore. So Westlaw and, and Lexis <laughs> no, no are, more, uh, are no more daily are, case exactly, searches here. are off the table. And, and it really, it, it's. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, as your your other listeners will know, kind of in that general counsel role. I mean, I'm becoming more of a business person than a lawyer every year. It seems like uh, it, it just becomes more of a a management skill set and a, in, I mean, interacting with the other functional business leaders. So interacting with the CFO or the COO or the CEO to talk about broader risk issues and business strategy issues, I think is, is where the evolution is going. And just, I mean, reading things and keeping abreast on developments is about it. But I just, I'm, and I'm not really a great technology person either. I still keep notes on a legal pad and <laughs> and I've not gone paperless. All right. <laughs> Great. Thank you. I think that's uh, that's helpful. The second question was, 
What regulatory hurdles that face merger transactions do you think should be eliminated or revised? In other words, are there things that you encountered on a regulatory side? And I don't know if it relates to perhaps the SEC filings or there's other things that come to mind, but I think they're looking at are there regulations that maybe could be eliminated to make these transactions easier to accomplish? The And, and it's not something that in particular impacted us and any of our transactions, but I think it really gets into the antitrust issues and if the transaction isn't going to be challenged by DOJ and it's going to proceed, I mean, like some of the, the bigger transactions recently that have been, have been blown up. I think that the regulations, antitrust regulations that really prohibit you from exercising any semblance of control over the target before you close the transaction, that creates risk for, for the transaction, for both groups of shareholders. Now, I understand the logic of it, that you're two separate organizations, you need to continue to function as two separate organizations, but to the extent that the clear survivor can have operational level input into the pre-closing operations of the target, would just put you in a better position to hit the ground running on day one when you don't have to wait until day one to go in and tell people, okay, here's the plan. So I think looking at the antitrust regulations surrounding mergers and acquisitions could be a, an interesting area for, just on that front, for regulatory change or analysis. Great. All right. Thank you. That, that's helpful. And thank you to our listening members that contributed questions. Um, it's now time to turn to the fun part of the show, the Bulldog Bites Guest Quiz. Uh, Rob, I'm going to ask you four different questions that are broadly related to real estate or buildings. If you get them correct, you'll be taking home this beautiful tumbler with Winston the Bulldog on it. Miss any questions and, well, you'll still get the prize because... <laughs> We want your business. So, <laughs> so, um, so, Rob, are you ready for uh, ready for the questions? All right, Mark. And I assure the audience, Rob has not seen these in advance. Uh, because you're a vice president of a property company, I wanted to ask about some famous buildings. Big ones, old ones, strange ones, other buildings. The first question is, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is the world's tallest building, which it became in 2008, standing at 2,717 feet tall. To put that into perspective, it's nearly twice as tall as what famous New York City building? Empire State Building. That is correct. Good. You know, we're still easy into this. Um, but it is remarkable. Everyone, everyone, thinks, everyone thinks of Empire State as, you know, tall, and it obviously was the tallest building in the world at its time. And the fact that we doubled that in 2008 is interesting. I think it's right. interesting, too, that we haven't had a taller building in the intervening nine years. So. That's true. I, but I didn't phrase that in the form of a question. Is that okay? You're fine. Okay. You're fine, yes. <laughs> we, we do not require it as a question. Um, so, the Empire State Building held the record as the world's tallest building from 1934 to 1974 until what landmark took its place? Sears Tower. Sears Tower is correct. 
Yes, it went. It went Empire State, Sears Tower, and then I believe World Trade Center then displaced uh, Sears Tower. And and I learned in looking this up, it's now called the Willis Tower. Okay. I still think of it as the Sears Tower with those two white antennas uh, reaching to the sky. And I guess that was 40 years for Empire State Building being at the top. So maybe Burj Khalifa's got uh, some time <laughs> to go. To but go. it seemed like there was a period of time where there was a new tallest building every mm-hmm. couple of years. All right. So Le Lignon, and I may not be pronouncing it. It's, it's probably French because we're in Geneva, Switzerland. But as best I can tell, that's the largest apartment complex in the world. And how many apartment units does it have? I will give you choices. Is it A, 1,107, B, 1,910, or C, 2,780? C. C is correct. Good job. 2,780 units, over 6,000 residents built to address a housing shortage in Geneva in the 1960s. And we certainly don't necessarily think of Switzerland as high-density housing. Uh, but that's a lot of people in an apartment. That is, that's a big apartment complex. What's your largest building? It's a little over a thousand. Okay, gotcha. A thousand residents uh, or a thousand units? units? Okay. So it could be probably two thousand to three thousand residents. Okay. Yeah. No, that's 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 big. So you're almost half the size of the world's largest. All right, and then question number four: This mansion is the second most visited private home in America, preceded only by the White House. Graceland. Graceland, Tennessee. We had to have some Memphis tie-in since that's where we're recording this podcast today. Elvis's 23-room home attracts about 600,000 visitors every year, and it is a remarkable place to visit. So, and Rob, there, congratulations. Uh, thank oh. you. There's still a candlelight vigil that people will uh, go to on the anniversary of Elvis's death every year. They will line up about... Uh, an hour deep to go walk by the gravesite with their candle on the anniversary of his death. Just keep that in mind if you uh, have any vacation plans to come to Memphis in August. Wow. That is good to know. <laughs> well, you're one of our few guests to get a perfect score on the quiz, Rob. So you've definitely earned your uh, your Tumblr today, and I appreciate it. And if listeners are interested in hearing more about you, uh, is there a way for them to contact you? Do you have any upcoming speaking engagements? Nothing right now. All right. Nothing right now. Sounds good. Well, listeners, you can find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites as well as subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future shows uh, by heading to wcsr.com slash podcast or go to iTunes or the Google Play Store and look for Bulldog Bites. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Chew carefully.